Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And Marcel, listen, I know it's November. I don't care. I want to talk about little kids in Halloween costumes and I want to do it in the sorting chat. This is a great plan. Little kids in Halloween costumes is just... Instant serotonin, like should be prescribed. So... I went over for Halloween to friend of the pod, Ashra's house, and we gave out candy to the like very small handful of trick-or-treaters who came over to her place. We did not get a ton, but every single one that we got was a pure moment of such total brain pleasure. There was this tiny human, like maybe two, dressed like a hamburger. <laughs> Wow. I love that. That's so cute. I couldn't. I just, oh. And then Instagram fills up with like everybody's kids in their costumes and like just, wow. How lucky are we to live in a world where people dress their babies up like Donald Duck with a little feather on the butt? (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome for that. (laughs) Did I ever tell you about the time that I worked for the student union during my undergrad and the children in the university daycare came through the office for Halloween and one of them was dressed as a chicken? (laughs) And I said to Amy, who was the daycare manager, oh my God, that child is so cute. I want to die. And she said, just be careful what you say because someone earlier told him, you're so cute, I could eat you up. And he started to cry and said, I'm not an eating chicken, I'm a look at chicken. (laughs) (laughs) I'm 
chicken. I'm a lookout, <laughs> lookout chicken. chicken. <laughs> Kids in Halloween costumes. Love it. I also just want to make sure for listeners who haven't already looked, you can go to Marcel's Instagram account at Cosminator <laughs> with the number eight to see both Cohen dressed up as Donald Duck, but also Elliot <laughs> dressed as a Starship Trooper Fox. Stormtrooper Fox. <laughs> Sorry, Stormtrooper Fox. Yes. I mean, just incredible. But the photos that you posted of her looking like the Firefox logo. <laughs> it's just, there's nothing in the world that is better. Thank you to every parent and caretaker <laughs> who puts their child in a costume. You are doing the Lord's work. It's true. It's true. All of you out there who maybe had a little cry this Halloween trying to get your kids to do what you... <laughs> needed them to for the photo op it was worth it it was worth it you did it for me and i appreciate it do you ever feel like your brain is just mm, full now like just full no room for anything ever <laughs> well luckily what we lack in the ability to learn new things, we make up for in revision. <laughs> the idea behind this episode is to think about the different social movements that we encounter in Order of the Phoenix. We often think about social movements in retrospect, so like the civil rights movement, and when you trace a movement backward, it can kind of seem inevitable, but social movements are definitely not inevitable. And today we're going to defamiliarize the very idea of organizing by looking at how Michael Warner defines publics. Mm, Marcel, you are really good at choosing topics that are that guy I pretend to have read but have absolutely never read. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> All right. But first, before we do that... Let's review what we've covered so far that will help us make sense of this theory. Okay. This is going to come as a real shock to our listeners, but we're going to talk about ideology and discourse. What? I know, right? First time for everything. So as we get ready to think about publics, we need to remember that ideology is how we understand the world. That is, ideology is our imagined relationship to the real conditions of our existence. How we think about our lived experiences and where we fit within systems of power and our like society's organizational structures, all of that is ideological. And ideology can't exist without discourse. So discourse is the language that produces meaning and power. Discourse isn't neutral or objective because it is actively spreading ideology. Mm-hmm. So Ideology is how we understand the world, and discourse is the actual knowledge produced in order to generate and constantly reiterate that ideology. So, like, the ideology is capitalism, and the discourse is the million and one rags-to-riches narratives that produce the belief that anyone could make it big one day, and that actively encourages people to buy into the ideology of capitalism rather than work to dismantle it. Ooh. What I'm saying is, Will Orphan Annie is a class traitor. <laughs> Your wishes are command. Bring all your 
in our episode on the nation state, we discussed the sort of circular way nations are formed by a shared belief in the nation's existence. That is, we talked about how countries aren't real, but they're imagined to be real, like a like a collective delusion. Oh, I love that. So, Marcel, are nations ideological then? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> the script says answer. Yeah, no, of course, of course, of course nations are ideological, totally. Because if a nation isn't real, it is the imagined relationship to the place that I stand and work and live and play, right? Yeah, yeah. Land is real. Nation is ideological. Yeah, my body is real, but like my gender, my sex, my race, these things are all ideological. My body is a cage. That keeps you from dancing with the one you love. But your mind holds the key. My body is Yeah, so nations are ideological, but what's of particular relevance for our discussion today, I think, is Benedict Anderson's explanation of the way nations are imagined as communities. We talked about how print played a major role in allowing the average person to identify with their fellow citizens following the Enlightenment Things like novels and newspapers were essential in giving readers the tools to see themselves as aligned with others, irrespective of whether or not they'd ever met. This ability to identify with strangers is a big part of how publics work. All right. So there is in the wizarding world, there's like one obvious public, which is like the wizarding world, who understand themselves as being part of a community and have a shared newspaper and have, you know, some events that they all go to. And we can sort of see that operating. And we talked about that a little bit when we talked about nationalism. But the Order of the Phoenix introduces us to a few other or new key social organizations. And I think probably like the really important ones, we've got the rise of the Death Eaters, who are starting to like come back together as this group. We've got the Order of the Phoenix, of course. And we've got Dumbledore's army. Mm -hmm. I originally, when I was thinking about, like, what are the social organizations we encounter, I really wanted to include Umbridge's inquisitorial squad in here. Me too! (laughs) Yeah, but the more I think about it, the more I'm like, oh, they're not really a social organization. They're kind of like an ad hoc paramilitary group. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So they might kind of be an interesting litmus test for us as we think about, like, what makes a thing a public and why for both of us did we instinctively say, like, oh, not that. Yeah, absolutely. I think in the next segment, when we get into the sort of nuances of of what a public is and how it works, I think that's where we'll sort of we'll sort of be able to piece together why Dumbledore's army would be a public, but the inquisitorial squad doesn't quite meet the criteria. So are we going to get into the distinctions between publics and counterpublics in this episode? We are not. (laughs) I wanted to. I had the intention of it. But as I was compiling the information for this script, there's just so much to get into in order to explain what a public is, that getting into the nuances of a public's relationship to dominant culture (laughs) just ended up being secondary. So... (laughs) It's a conversation that's absolutely worth having, but we don't have time. For now, we're just going to look at the emergence and function of these three groups. So let's start with some differences. Okay, so 
Dumbledore's army, Order of the Phoenix, Death Eaters. The obvious thing that the book wants us to think about them is that we're looking at good versus evil. Like Dumbledore's army is like a junior Order of the Phoenix, and they both emerge in direct opposition to the Death Eaters and Voldemort's rise to power in general. Mm -hmm. But I think if we like apply a little bit more pressure to that thinking, we can see some other maybe more nuanced differences between them, right? Like there's some obvious ideological differences. What do they actually believe in? What kind of world are they trying to imagine into existence? They have different relationships to power, both in terms of members' relationships to the leader, but also in terms of the public's relationship to other publics or to the government. Their distinct age differences, it seems like Order of the Phoenix and Death Eaters, like those are grown-up groups. Dumbledore's Army is for kids. <laughs> it's kind of cute when you think about it that way. It is. It is. What is it? The Burger King Kids Club? Is that who has a kids club? I don't know. <laughs> the Burger King Kids Club. It's just for fun and just for you. And they also have different rules for inclusion and expectations of behavior, right? Like Death Eaters have terrifying magic tattoos that can <laughs> never be removed and that burn when Voldemort is near. Whereas like... Dumbledore's army has like a coin and a list and like order of Phoenix is like spatially oriented, right? It's like, can you get into 12 Grimmauld place? So they have different sort of ways you find out about them, ways you get included in them, ways you are initiated. And then like once you're in, I was going to say expectations of loyalty, but I'm getting ahead to the, the similarities, but like different ways that those expectations play out in terms of how you're supposed to be behaving. Totally. Okay, great job, Hannah. Now, let's talk about what they have in common, which I think is the fun part, because <laughs> it's fun to look at fascist organizations and anti-fascist organizations and talk about similarities. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Ooh, she's a troll. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. So... They are all three of them. This is actually something that only occurred to me this time around when I was reading the book, but they're all three of them secret societies, which I was like, oh, that's hmm, interesting. Membership is ideologically motivated. So while the, the ideological underpinnings of the respective groups are very different, the fact of inclusion sort of depends on ideological alignment between the members, right? None of them are formally affiliated with institutions like the Ministry or Hogwarts, even though all three of them have relationships with those institutions. They're not formal. All three have a charismatic leader. <laughs> <laughs> they do. I don't know why I find that so funny, <laughs> but I do. I mean, Voldemort, Harry, and Dumbledore, like the text doesn't not encourage us to read them as being in relation to one another. Totally. The trifecta of charisma, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> no? Uh -huh. Will you? Yeah, no, I will. You will. I will. Okay. I absolutely will. <laughs> and they all have developed communication systems. Yeah. I mean, not many of those are like explicitly textual, which is, I think, how I often think about publics. But like, we got coins. We've got tattoos. We've got secret fire 
heads. Fire. Sorry, that's when Sirius sticks his, his head in the fire. When he sticks his face in the fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a secret. It's a secret fire. I think that's the term they use in the book, secret firehead. I think you're right. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. I think, yeah, like there are different ways that we can think about what constitutes a text for sure. I mean, as literature scholars, we tend to think literally everything is a text. What isn't a text? Show me what you think isn't a text. I will convince you it is. Like scholars of theater think of everything as a performance, right? So like I see a chair, I call that chair a text. You see a chair, you call that chair a performance. Never the twain shall meet. I'm a media scholar, so I say that they're all media. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. So Marcel, are these various similarities we have found between the three organizations, like are those characteristics of publics are all public secret societies run by charismatic (laughs) leaders. (laughs) No. What I wanted to do in this section is just thinking about these three different organizations as having structural similarities, which we might be willing to overlook if we weren't thinking about the way that they exist as organizations. Yeah, absolutely. That we're, If we're looking at them as like fundamentally ideologically opposed, we're like, oh, these can't be the same sort of thing. But when we start to look at them structurally, we're like, oh, actually, these have quite a lot in common. <laughs> so now I want to know what actually makes a thing a public. You know what? I think we can talk about that in the next section. Okay, I know we implied that our brains are full, but just like Jello, there's always room for transfiguration class. There's always room for Jello. Okay, Marcel, we are talking about Publix, plural. So let's start with some definitions, because I want to know what the difference is between the public and a public. Oh, great. Great question, Hannah. So as I mentioned earlier, we're working with Michael Warner's theory of publics. Warner argues that, generally speaking, when we think of the public, we're thinking in terms of a kind of social totality or, you know, the people in general. Okay. So like when we say, give the people what they want, we're referring to the whole of society, but like in a cheeky way. Exactly. We're being ironic, but we have a cultural understanding that the public refers to all people all the time, anywhere. I mean, that itself sounds extremely made up. Oh, absolutely. The public is definitely ideological, but like that's a that's a topic for another episode. <laughs> but when we refer to things as public, like public toilets or public transport, these are things that we're thinking of as being for the use of any and all people. A public park is a park for the people. Unlike my backyard, anyone can expect to walk into it without needing to ask permission. You can go there to eat lunch or take a walk or paint or gather with other people, like whatever. (laughs) So there's like, there's nothing like deviant or threatening about walking into a public park, but if you saw a group of people milling about in your backyard, you might be concerned. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why are they there? My backyard is private. It's a secret. I know everyone who walks past it can see it, but it's a secret. You don't know it's there. (laughs) It's like the social contract where, like, if somebody's sitting on their balcony, you pretend you can't see them, even though you can, like, absolutely see them. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, because a balcony is not public space. A balcony is just, like, the extension of your secret apartment. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, So... The public, as, like, the social totality is, like, generally used to think about things like difference between public and private, like, the public can access, it's just, like, everybody. And I guess we can also think about the public in relation to the stated intentions of government, right? Like, laws and policies are supposedly created for the public good, i.e. for the collective whole, i.e. for everyone. Exactly. Yes, that's the stated intention. Yeah, I mean, it's a lie, but... Okay, yes, exactly. So that's the public. By contrast, we can think of a public as a smaller cluster of people that is specifically not everyone, okay? So, like, this idea makes the most sense in relation to a shared space or a shared experience. So, like, a a concert or theater-going audience is a public, It's a group of people who, as individuals, may exit or enter that shared space or experience without actually changing the nature of that public. So, to be fun, let's talk about Dave Chappelle, for example. What a fun, unfraught example. (laughs) So, Chappelle's audience is a public. If individual members of that public don't find his material funny, they can walk out of the show or turn off the TV special. They can, like, cease engaging with his comedy. In other words, they can take themselves out of that public, but that public still exists. So this is sort of why cancel culture isn't a real thing, because like you can say you don't like something and stop engaging with it, and it's like the public still exists. Yeah. Yeah. So Warner says, quote, A crowd at a sports event, a concert, or a riot might be a bit blurrier around the edges, but it still knows itself by knowing where and when it is assembled in common visibility and common action, end quote. Okay, so in one sense, a public is like a bunch of people who got together to do a thing, and they might not have originally gotten together together. (laughs) Like, I didn't go to the movie theater with every other person who's in the movie theater, but that's right. Once we're all sitting in that room, we are all a shared public, united in the experience of watching Dune on IMAX coming soon to a theater near you. Yes, precisely. I'm going to go see Dune on IMAX, Marcel. I'm really excited. It's going to be my first movie. I'm excited for you. <laughs> okay, so that's how we distinguish between the public singular and a public plural. This is probably starting to sound a little bit repetitive, but let me introduce a third notion of public, plural. I won't have it. I'll walk out. You must. You must. (laughs) Fine. (laughs) Okay, so Warner adds this third notion of a public, and it's this third notion that is particularly relevant to our interest in social movements in Order of the Phoenix. This third type is, and I quote, the kind of public that comes into being only in relation to texts and their circulation, end quote. So, Sometimes Warner calls this third type a discourse public, but not always. And 
I think that calling it a discourse public is a very useful distinction because he specifically says that a discourse public is not an audience. Okay. And so having a different name for it than the public that you call an audience, it's like pretty crucial. So even though when he's talking about like publics and counterpublics, he's actually talking about discourse publics um, and discourse counterpublics. And so that's what we're going to call them. We're going to talk about discourse publics. Yes, just to be clear. Good thing we already know what discourse is. That's why we included it in revision. Marcel, are the <laughs> listeners to which please a discourse public? Yes. Yes, they are. They are also an audience. Oh, wow. Okay. I don't understand that distinction yet. Are we going to get into it? <laughs> uh, kind of. <laughs> Sort of. I Not guess we're really, going to get no. more into what a discourse public is, and we'll figure we'll figure it out. Yeah, like the thing the thing we need to keep in mind is that um, is that these these different types of publics they're not mutually exclusive. Okay, so you can be an audience in a discourse public. Exactly. At the same time, and still being involved in separate publics, like like Warner says that the distinctions are, and I quote, not always sharp. End quote. So, like, there's a lot of slippage between them. We could imagine that some people attending a university lecture on Harry Potter, for example, they might be there to protest the promotion of witchcraft and have no affiliation with the university whatsoever. Okay, so, like, a discourse public can overlap with an audience public. So, in addition to a smaller defined cluster of people like university students attending a lecture as part of their class— People with no relationship to that group or space where the lecture is taking place are also part of that public by virtue of being there, but that public is different from the student's public. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think I think so. It's like it's a little bit it's a little bit confusing. And like the distinctions between these types of publics are like not quite as important as the defining characteristics of the discourse public because of the fact that there's slippage. So like the students who are in attendance are in one kind of public because they're a defined group. And those other folks who show up because they are ideologically opposed to the promotion of witchcraft, they're there because they're part of a discourse public, right? They're not there because they're students. So they're a different public, but they're both in the room at the same time taking in the same information. And some of those students who are there because they're students in the class might also be part of that discourse public. So like you can be part of multiple publics at any given time and those publics can coexist. I mean, that makes sense because identity is also complex and and like overlapping. It's like a like a Venn diagram, one might say. Coach liked that. <laughs> coach liked that because Coach typed that into the chat. <laughs> okay, so I definitely need to understand what a discourse public is better. So can you tell me what our white male theorist of the day has to say about discourse publics? Absolutely. Michael Warner gives us seven criteria to understand what a discourse public is and how it works. Of the seven criteria, some are more important than others, and some are explained a bit better than others. <laughs> let's just focus in on the ones that make sense. All right, let's let's start with a big one, okay? Okay. <laughs> Criterion the first. 
A discourse public is self-organized. Whew. Okay. Um, <laughs> that sounds like a potluck. <laughs> yeah. It's not unlike a potluck. Warner says that a discourse public is, quote, a space of discourse organized by nothing other than the discourse itself. <laughs> I know. Stop using, stop using the word in its definition. <laughs> I know. It involves a kind of chicken and egg circularity, which Warner claims is, and I quote, essential to the phenomenon, end quote. <laughs> oh, my God. That's very like. Are you confused? That means you're paying attention. Yeah, very much, very much. Stop it. <laughs> the discourse public exists by virtue of being addressed. So before it is addressed, it doesn't exist. And yet, if it doesn't exist before it's being addressed, who is the sp- to whom is the speaker speaking? We talk about this a lot in publishing studies, that like publishing is the creation of publics. Like, when you go to publish a thing, you have to have an audience in mind. But I guess you have an audience in mind, but then you create a public. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of of thinking about it, right? You have an audience in mind, but the circulation of that text creates a discourse public. So it's a discourse public even if people aren't getting together in a theater or, like, in a room together to, like, talk about the text. Right. So the, the discourse public needs to have a way of organizing itself and of addressing itself. But this doesn't mean getting together in a room. It just means that there needs to be some way of circulating knowledge, circulating information among the members of the public. And so this is sort of where the textual part comes in. So this can include speeches, pamphlets, literature, radio broadcasts, podcasts, etc. So like, for example, if you can't raise the alarm against cancel culture, are you even a white feminist? Can white feminism even exist without other white feminists to get riled up about things like cancel culture? All right. So this is starting to cohere for me around the difference between a discourse public and an audience in the sense that it seems like an audience is maybe more passive Whereas a discourse public is like engaged in some sort of like active responsiveness or active like generation of a sense of self as part of a public. Very much so. But that's a different criteria. And we're going to get to that in a moment. Oh, no, I'm (laughs) skipping ahead. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So probably the most important detail about being self-organized, because self-organization is the criteria that we're thinking about right now, is the point that a discourse public must be organized by something other than the state. Mm, That's why the inquisitorial squad doesn't count. Because Umbridge is basically a representative of the state, and she creates that group. It's not self-organizing. Yes. Yes. Warner basically says that if all publics were organized by the state, if you couldn't just get together with other people, with other like-minded individuals, self-organization would just be replaced with bureaucracy, and that would be totalitarianism. So you would, like, join a public in the same way that you would apply for a driver's license. 
Yeah. And it's a sign of totalitarianism when the state makes you notify them in advance that you are intending to gather as a public. Yes. Yes. So he says, and I think this is useful for thinking about Order of the Phoenix, quote, imagine how powerless people would feel if their commonality and participation were simply defined by pre-given frameworks, end quote. Mm. Yeah. So like there would be no sense of belonging. And it turns out that a sense of belonging is like really important to yeah. a self-organized public. Oh, my God. We see so much of how self-organizing publics is literally a way of like working against the feeling of powerlessness in this book. Exactly. Dumbledore's army is like the only thing that that makes Harry willing to go back to Hogwarts. Okay. I think we should also think about the nature of a self-organized public in relation to the ministry employees who join the Order of the Phoenix, right? Yeah, because they are members of, I mean, they're members of the public, of course, but they are also part of a thing we have figured out is not a public because it's not a public if the government makes it. So it's, they're part of the government, but then they also have like deliberately self-organized into the order of the Phoenix. And the book makes it really clear that like, not only are those things not the same, but like one's almost sort of in opposition to the other. Exactly. We've got Tonks and Kingsley Shacklebolt who are oars. So they work for the ministry to track down bad wizards, and yet they've joined the secret society to fight Voldemort and the Death Eaters, even at risk to their jobs. And we have Arthur Weasley, who, like, works in the trenches of anti-muggle sentiment, you know, for example, those muggle-baiting, regurgitating toilets that he describes to Harry. And yet, like Tonks and Kingsley, he joins this club whose whole, like, raison d'etre is resisting Voldemort's fascist anti-muggle politics. So like with these three characters, we can see that the ministry's formal channels of doing work that aligns politically with the Order of the Phoenix, that can't replace the sense of belonging that comes from the self-organized public that is the Order of the Phoenix. Gotcha. Does that gotcha, kind of make gotcha. sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. Like we see it in the way that they interact with each other at the ministry versus the way they interact with each other at 12 Grimmauld Place. That at the ministry, they are co-workers and that has a whole sort of behavior to it. And then in the Order of the Phoenix, it's like they are part of something together. Yeah, exactly. So when the state provides you with formal channels through which to live your best political life, it's just not the same. And I think that's like the scholarly term for it. It's just not the same as a self-organized group of people who are fighting the good fight, I guess. Okay, so if a discourse public requires participation, does that mean that everybody in that public knows each other? No. And this brings us to the next criterion, <laughs> the next of the seven criteria. A discourse public is a relation among strangers. Okay. Isn't that also <laughs> what a nation is? Yes. So thinking back to what Benedict Anderson says about the nation as an imagined community, a discourse public likewise hinges on identification with strangers. And this is, again, like going back to what you were saying about publishing, this is because the discourse public is 
fundamentally text-based. The circulation of ideas through text necessarily means reaching strangers because we can't control the audience of a written text, right? That's so interesting because it's like often we can't see the way that this relationship has been created between strangers until those strangers cease to be strangers. But like it makes me think of the way that... um have you ever like been out in public and you've got some like weird nerdy little thing on you and somebody recognizes it? Yes. And it feels so good. <laughs> and it feels so good. And you're like, oh my God, you also watch that specific Dungeons and Dragons live play series? <laughs> and they're like, I do. And even though you know objectively that like millions of people watch that thing, you're like, we're the same. <laughs> same. Same. I have a connection to you somehow. The adventure begins. They were always beside you. Your nerdy best friends and the DM to guide you. So this is sort of the idea of a public being open-ended. Like anyone might theoretically be willing and able to join a public and likewise leave, right? Like when you're done with a public you go, you stop watching the thing, you no longer want to participate in the fandom, whatever, you leave. So if I'm recruiting like-minded teens to join me in learning defensive magic because our needs aren't being met by our school, it follows that any student who feels that their needs are not being met might join, irrespective of other identifiers like their year or gender or house affiliation. Okay, right. So like, because it might be surprising to learn that a Slytherin would want to join a club organized by a Gryffindor, but it wouldn't be surprising to learn that there are Slytherins who feel dissatisfied with the quality of education they receive at Hogwarts. Precisely. I mean, that is, in fact, something that Draco Malfoy complains about for the entire book series up until the point where he gets a teacher who doesn't teach him anything. <laughs> <laughs> So if a stranger is just a member of a discourse public you haven't met yet, the speech acts addressed to a public's membership have to account for those potential noobs, right? So this brings us to yet another criteria. The address of public speech is both personal and impersonal. So I'm talking to you, but you could be anyone. Yes. So Warner says, quote, Public speech must be addressed to us and addressed to strangers. And, he says, our subjectivity is understood as having resonance with others, and immediately so, end quote. Um, so we can think of the scene in The Hogshead when both Hermione and Harry are addressing this crowd of 25 students who show up. And, like, they don't know a bunch of them. Yeah, they don't know a bunch of them, exactly. Oh, because they put a text out into the world that said to those students, if you identify with this, self-organize yourself into a public by virtue of showing up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so all of these strangers showed up and they became a public by virtue of responding to that text. Yeah. And I think, too, we could also think kind of about word of mouth also being a kind of text, too, right? Like Everything's a text. Everything's a text. They can't control who gets invited to this thing, right? So like literally any student could have shown up. Draco Malfoy could have shown up. The fact that he didn't show up is really more an indicator of like the ideological nature of this group of students. Yeah. I mean, the idea that a 
text that is creating a public has to reach everyone to count really misunderstands how like textual circulation happens, right? Because like a lot of the time people don't get their hands on that text in the first place and so never have the opportunity to identify as part of a public. And often the question of what comes across your social media feed or your, you know, TBR pile is itself already a sign of your sort of ideological positioning. Yeah, exactly. So when Warner is saying that the address of public speech is both personal and impersonal, the speech act or the text needs to reach strangers, but it does not necessarily need to reach every single person equally. We gravitate around ideological similarity, or we gravitate around things that are ideologically familiar to us or ideologically appealing to us. Okay. So if I'm understanding you correctly, anyone can become a member of a discourse public by virtue of hearing someone talk at a given time? Well, to answer that question, Hannah, I'd like to introduce you to Warner's fourth criteria for a discourse public. (laughs) A public is constituted through mere attention. So yeah, all you have to do is just pay attention. Warner actually gives an example of someone sleeping through a ballet to show us how little is required to be part of a discourse public. So he says, and I quote, the act of attention involved in showing up is enough to create an addressable public. So like, (laughs) so like, I mean, this is great. Like how many times have you been in a theater and there's like all of these like boomers who obviously have season passes and are just like sleeping through (laughs) that Beckett play. How many times? So many times. (laughs) So many times. And you're just like, why are you here? And they're like, uh, duh. Michael Warner said that a public is constituted through mere attention, Hannah. (laughs) Yeah. Like what you're getting at is the fact that you don't have to like the conversation in order to be part of that discourse public. The mere fact of tuning in, so to speak, makes you a part of it. I think a really good example of this might be Snape. Oh, yeah, because he's he's like a member of the Death Eaters. Like, he shows up when his tattoo activates. He is an audience for... Or I keep... My brain keeps wanting to be like, he sups of the discourse. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Yeah, he drinks the Kool-Aid. What a wild way to put that. (laughs) Yeah, he does. He does. He sups of Voldemort's discourse. He circulates Voldemort's discourse. Like, we will learn that, ooh, he was a good guy all along. But if all you need to do in order to be part of a discourse public is pay attention, Snape arguably pays greater attention as a member of the Death Eaters than any other Death Eater, right? Like, that's his job as a double agent. Yeah. It gets at what a difficult position he's in to recognize that he is a Death Eater and he is a member of the Order of the Phoenix. And both of those things are true. He is a member of both of those directly conflicting publics. Yes, because you can be a member of multiple publics simultaneously And they can be ideologically opposed. We contain multitudes. You're really just filling my brain with jello right now. Let's burn through the fifth and sixth criteria, but I'll give you a quick, I'll give you a soupçon 
of <laughs> what they are. I won't I won't fully sup of them, but I will perhaps have a taste. <laughs> An amuse-bouche, if you will. Mm. (laughs) Okay, number five. A public is the social space created by the reflexive circulation of discourse. So basically, this is the fact that no single text can constitute or create a public, right? It can't be one thing. It has to be ongoing. It has to be aware of itself. I mean, a fandom, right? Like, it's not enough to create a fandom for them to just like have read one book exactly there has to be like this ongoing way of engaging people and an ongoing way that they're engaging each other through like fan fiction and through like new versions of the text and through adaptations and through like there has to be some energy going in that like keeps it circulating? Yeah. In in particular, it's that self-awareness, right? So like when you participate in something as a fan, you are participating in the context of that fandom. So you're like, you can't, you can't engage in a fandom if you don't know that a fandom exists. Mm, okay. Any utterance among the participants of Dumbledore's army, for example, is always already being uttered in the context of the DA's existence. Gotcha. I know that that probably doesn't make it more clear, but we're burning past. It makes it more clear. It's like you can't accidentally be part of a public. Yeah, you cannot. That's true. Yeah. You can't be part of a public if you don't know it exists. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Okay, number six. Publics act historically according to the temporality of their circulation. So this one I find really interesting because I did archival research for my dissertation. So like I read a lot of early 20th century white feminist literature, but that doesn't mean that I could, even if I wanted to, be a member of that eugenic racist public, which is being addressed by those texts, because I'm too far historically removed. I'm too far temporally removed from that circulating discourse. So like reading the text is not enough. Paying attention to the existence of the text is not enough because you actually have to like be engaged in it. That is cool when we think about like reading historical texts and relating to them. And you're right. It doesn't, it doesn't give us, doesn't give us a ton about this particular episode, but it's deeply interesting to me. And I would love to have a very long conversation about how one positions oneself as a reader of historical texts. Another day. All right. Finally, the moment we've all been waiting for. I have been desperate for the seventh criteria (laughs) all day. I've been saying, when will we get there, Marcel? Please, can we get there now? (laughs) Are we there yet? Are we there yet? This is where shit gets poetic. Number seven. A public is poetic world making. Marcel, I love this so much. I talk about world making so much in all of my writing. (laughs) So do we mean poetic here in the sense of it rhymes? Or do we mean poetic in the sense of like, the 
etymological origin of the word poetic is poiesis, <laughs> which actually just means creation. Uh, no, it's rhyming. Like all publics rhyme. No, I'm just joking. I'm glad that you gave us the etymological origin of poetic because I actually didn't know what it was. And I really skimmed this section when I was reading because I was like, ah, I know what this means. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been talking about publics as open-ended, addressed to strangers as well as to friends. They're ideologically aligned. They're self-organized. Ultimately, when we think about world-making, what we're talking about is a public that, like, imagines the world in a specific way. And that way might be different than the way that it currently is. Yeah, 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 yeah. My favorite scholar on the topic of publics is Lauren Berlant. They were just an absolutely brilliant theorist, and they passed away really recently, and I love them very profoundly. And we'll figure out a way to do an episode about their work at some point, because I just want to talk about them all the time. And I got the chance to see them talk via Zoom maybe six months before their death. And in it, they were talking about the way that publics get together to imagine worlds collectively. And they referred to publics as... Um, enacting a pedagogy of showing up. So it's like the fact that we show up for each other is itself a moment of saying, I'm not satisfied with the world as it is. I want it to be otherwise somehow. And publics are always temporary. They are always sort of responsive, right? They're like responding to a need or a moment or something like that. But by virtue of all showing up and saying we need this, you are like imagining another kind of world into existence. Yeah. And the thing that's kind of shitty is that this applies as much to the Death Eaters as it does to the Order of the Phoenix or Dumbledore's army. So like... Fascists are also trying to imagine another world into existence. Yeah. Why they think it would be better... I can't wrap my head around, but like the ideology isn't let's make everything worse for everyone except for me. It's this is the way the world is. This is the way the world should be. Yeah. I mean, I think we can see in the Death Eaters the sense of they are motivated by fear of loss of power and they are motivated by a sense of how they think the world should be and how they think the world should be is ruled by pure-blooded wizards, like managed and structured in ways that keep them on the top and that don't threaten the sort of foundations of the things that they believe in, which is like pure-bloodedness and survival of the strongest and all of these creepy fascist things that people do genuinely believe in. And they are actively trying to make a world that reflects those ideologies. Okay, so I know we've already been like drawing on various Harry Potter examples to help make sense of what constitutes a public, but I think I am ready to dive back into this novel. What do you say? I would love to do that. Let's put on our water wings and get treading. Yep, let's put on our water wings and jump into that kiddie pool full of jello. This metaphor is going great. <laughs> Okay, it's time for owls. <laughs> Transfiguration class was so long, we're going to skip all the howdy duties and just jump right into the ways that this theory of publics works. 
in Order the Phoenix. Okay, I want to start. I want to start with <laughs> the fact that Umbridge, who is our totalitarian despot figure, requires all student groups to disband in order to then reapply for permission to exist. Mm, oh my God, Marcel, I didn't think about this. Yeah, she takes away. She takes away the fact of self-organization. Yeah. She wants to eliminate publics because publics as like self-organizing groups that can like ostensibly sort of imagine a different kind of world existing are a danger to her attempt to have total control over Hogwarts. Exactly. Yeah. The power of the group is in its self-organization. But joke's on her. Because you can't actually prevent self-organization. <laughs> you can make it harder. By virtue of making it harder, you just make people want it more. <laughs> totally. So, like, that added need for covertness is part of what gives the DA's membership its sense of community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is making me think, too, of, like, Umbridge's pedagogy, where she's like, okay, nobody in this class can be allowed to talk to each other, like engage with the text via conversation. Like she's trying to make sure that like even in the space for her classroom, nobody becomes a public. No, no doing, no doing publicness. Even if we think about how Hermione asks a question, her response is like, well, I think if you reread the chapter, you'll find that the answer is perfectly clear. So it's like the answer has to be within the text. You can't question the text. Yeah, you can't have a conversation about the text. You have to, it has to be like a one-way, like text, enter, brain, end of story. So, you know, if we're thinking about discourse publics, we've got to think like, what is the discourse? Like, what is the, what is the thing that is circulating because we've got that first letter or it's not a first letter. It's a first, we've got like the original narrative, which is like this word of mouth spread, like we're going to gather, right? This sort of invitation. And then the next text is the list that everybody signs onto. That's right. Yes. And then we've got the text, the educational decree, can't remember what number, that prohibits student groups and defines what a student group is. So that also turns them into another kind of public because they are relating to that text collectively in a particular way by virtue of like recognizing that what they're doing is not allowed and doing it anyway. And then there's also the galleons, which become the sort of actively circulating text that sort of by virtue of like participating in this communication system, they are like continuing to sort of enact this public into ongoing existence. Yeah, which I think reminds us that when we're talking about the relationship of publics to text, the text doesn't have to like, it doesn't have to be a letter or a message. It doesn't have to be like a newspaper article or a published work of poetry. Right. All it has to do is invite some kind of action or response. And so the fact that the galleons, these are just tokens, but they provide information for the public to respond accordingly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We keep sort of sliding towards the counter public question. Um, so for those of you who are listening and are like, you're talking about counter publics, just remember, counter publics are still publics. That's why they've got publics in the name. Yeah. <laughs> 
Todd. Yeah, yeah Todd. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, so the example of the educational decree sort of reminds us that a text's relationship to its public doesn't have to match the intention of that text and doesn't necessarily even need to overlap with like who that text might think it's reaching in the first place, right? That like the same text can be circulating in multiple different publics in multiple different ways. The example you gave of, of the lecture, right? That like people with different, who, who identify with or who are participating in different publics might be in the audience of that lecture, but that text is circulating within their publics in different ways and doing different things. And we, we get, I think, a good sense of, of that sort of those different relationships between texts and publics, those like complex relationships when we look at the newspapers, because the Daily Prophet continues to play a really important role in the Order of Phoenix. Yes. Right? Hermione's still subscribed to the Daily Prophet like she was in the last book, and she's still noticing what it's saying. And then we also get the introduction of the Quibbler, which is our like counterculture zine. <laughs> In relation to the Daily (laughs) Prophet, which they also start reading, but like they're not reading it in this straightforward like the Daily Prophet is for me and I read it and it tells me about me or like the quibbler is a thing I believe in and I'm going to read it and believe the things it says. (laughs) They are reading it critically. They are relating to it in complex ways but its circulation continues to be a really important component of really all three of these publics, of, of the Death Eaters, of the Order of the Phoenix, and of Dumbledore's army. Definitely. We can look at Rita Skeeter's article that gets published in The Quibbler as being a sort of a logical go-to for a text that aligns ideologically or politically with the goals of the Order of the Phoenix or with the goals of Dumbledore's army. This is Rita Skeeter's like interview with Harry that's like a tell-all that they get placed in the quibbler. Yes, exactly. But that text, it doesn't do as much for the Order of the Phoenix or Dumbledore's army as all of the hateful propaganda posts that are being written in the Daily Prophet. So like the relationship between text and public isn't always, I want to say it's not, it does, it's not always like logical. Yeah. I mean, it's just not, it's just not straightforward. I think we get little tastes of this when we come across like weird meme cultures that are part of other publics. And we're like, what does the frog mean? (laughs) What is that though? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess a key thing that we're getting at here is that a text can be a really important part of a public, um, that it can be sort of addressing a public in some way, even just via sort of how they engage with it, without that text necessarily being ideologically aligned with that public. So like the Daily Prophet is not ideologically aligned with the Order of the Phoenix or the Death Eaters. It is the ideological output of the government. But responsiveness to what is happening in the Daily Prophet and a particular orientation to and use of that information is really fundamental to both of those publics. 
Yeah, yeah. The text does not necessarily reinforce the ideology of the public that it is affecting or motivating. I mean, I think we we see that in Which Please as a project. (gasps) But like, it's a public that is organized around engagement with a set of texts that we are not ideologically aligned with. That's true. Yeah. And the relationship that the Harry Potter fandom itself has had with the text has also shifted. Like the meaning of the text has changed as more information about its author's politics have come to light. And we see that happening with Harry's shifting relationship to the Quibbler. So when Harry begins this book, he identifies as somebody who is probably more likely to take the Daily Prophet seriously and dismiss the Quibbler as bunk, which a lot of the wizarding world would sort of align with that as well. And as he starts to realize that the Daily Prophet is actively casting him as like an unhinged radical, part of that misalignment with the Daily Prophet or that shifting relationship to it is what prompts him to form the public that is Dumbledore's army and prompts his participation in the Order of the Phoenix as well. And by virtue of becoming part of a public that is organized around its critical reading of the Daily Prophet, he starts to open up a little bit more to the idea that the quibbler, while often a little silly, is perhaps not as totally dismissible as he had thought. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if he does this consciously, but it's sort of like he comes to see himself like of a kind with the quibbler, like in both cases, the way that they have been mocked, like publicly disparaged. Yeah, the way that they have been figured in the public as something to be derided, that there's a similarity there. Yeah, hmm, that's very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And it is it is sort of an interesting moment where, like, by virtue of being, and this is, again, it's me slip-sliding into counter-publics, but, like, by virtue of seeing that you are not being spoken to by a lot of, like, mainstream texts can often be the thing that prompts you to, like, form a a public that is resistant to those texts and to maybe out of that public start, like, generating your own kinds of, like, resistant texts. Yes. Oh, my God. I really want to talk about counterpublics because having talked and come to an understanding of what a public is is absolutely necessary for understanding what a counterpublic is. Because like you said, a counterpublic is still a public, but its relationship to dominant culture is fundamentally oppositional. But we just don't have time. So we're just going to have to talk about that in another episode. <laughs> it, is, it is fun. We're, we're teasing counterpublics, everyone. Get, get <laughs> hype. So we've talked about some, some examples of texts and we have this sense that like, okay, People are there like these texts circulating and people are like relating to them differently. And some of them are like circulating really widely, like the Daily Prophet. And so like lots of different publics relate to them, but through different lenses. And other ones are like 
sort of being produced just in the context of those publics. And so like their grammars are only really legible to people who already are part of that public. Mm-hmm. Like a magic coin. <laughs> right? It's like a yeah. grammar that's only legible to people who are already members of Dumbledore's army. So let's maybe like flip our focus and go back to like the things we are claiming our publics. So the Order of the Phoenix is a public by virtue of the fact that they have self-organized out of a recognized need that while they are specifically talking to each other, they are also implicitly talking to or open to other people who would also align with them. Yeah, yeah. Like Dumbledore is the one who's doing the most public speaking. So because many of the other members cannot speak publicly, like they're still part of that public, but they can't necessarily take part in the same speech acts that Dumbledore can, right? So when he's talking publicly about Voldemort's return, what he's essentially doing is he's both addressing the immediate audience, like Fudge, but he's also doing an open-ended address. So anybody else who is in attendance might be like, you know, I do feel like Voldemort is back. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And if it's constituted by mere attention, it's maybe worth distinguishing between like the Order of the Phoenix as a secret society and the Order of the Phoenix as a public. Because then we could say like, okay, all of the kids in this book are not allowed to join the Order. That's right. They cannot become members. But by virtue of being spoken to by the same texts, of paying attention to what's going on, of participating in the same imaginative acts of world building, they are part of the discourse public that is the Order of the Phoenix, even if they're not members of the society. Yes. Oh my God, Hannah. Yes. That is a brilliant way to distinguish between like a formal society and the discourse public. Yes, absolutely. And the same, I think, can be said of the Death Eaters, right? That like they are a secret society, but there is also the sort of creation of speech that is meant to create a larger discourse public of people who will be like sympathetically and politically aligned with the ideologies of that secret society. Yeah, like Harry and Sirius have that conversation, right? Where Harry is like, so your family, were they Death Eaters? And Sirius is like, no, they weren't Death Eaters, but they definitely thought that Voldemort had the right idea. And it's not until Voldemort's behavior begins to make them uncomfortable that they then remove themselves from that discourse public, right? So like they participated in it up to the point where they were like, ooh, this is a little bit too fascist for me. (laughs) Absolutely. And in part, I think something that is really key about the way that these publics have to organize themselves as secret societies is speaking to the fact that the wizarding world itself is slipping into fascism, right? That's happening throughout this whole book. It's Umbridge is enacting it 
at Hogwarts, but Fudge is also attempting to enact it at the level of the ministry. And so the various publics that in a free society would be able to be publics publicly kind of have to do their publicing secretly. <laughs> yeah, it's a great way to put it. They have to do their publicing secretly because there are consequences to publicing publicly under fascism. <laughs> so going back to the idea of the Death Eaters and Sirius's family, like his brother joins the Death Eaters. His parents, who are part of the discourse public, are able to remove themselves from the discourse public. But Regulus can't remove himself from being a Death Eater. We'll learn that his death is different from what Sirius thinks it is. But at the time, we're like, oh, if you are a Death Eater and you try to leave the Death Eaters, you get killed. And that's because the Death Eaters are fundamentally fascist and totalitarian. So they're not actually a discourse public because they're the formal society, even though we've been saying up until now that they're a discourse public. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. This is so confusing. They kind <laughs> of are though. And I think this is again, the Venn diagram operates here that what thinking about publics helps us get at is how the secret societies emerging in this book are publics in formation. They are nascent publics. They are proto-publics. They're almost in some ways kind of like fighting to become publics. And we know that's the case because despite the fact that they are operating in secrecy and that membership is limited, they are nonetheless circulating their discourses publicly or more publicly and a larger public of people who identify with those discourses, who self-organize, who begin to self-organize around identification with those discourses is like starting to emerge through this book. Mm, yes, totally. So like they're not fully emerged, but we'll see in subsequent books that like people will start to come out of the woodwork who are like, yeah, I'm down with the Death Eaters. Like, I might not be a member of the Death Eaters, but I align myself with what they are saying and will participate in this public in the ways that I can. And the same goes for the Order of the Phoenix, that it is sort of the nascent shell of a public or the nascent kernel of a public that is coming into being because of this new kind of discourse that's circulating. So good. It is really interesting to think about because I really have thought about this book as a book that is about secret societies and almost sort of about the non-circulation of information. But really, in a lot of ways, it is about like two different publics, I mean, two different counter publics, really, sort of battling it out for the ability to dominate the wizarding world's ideological understanding of itself. Yeah, yeah. The counterpublics in a battle to the death to become the public. Yeah, kind of, kind of, right? Because if, if discourse publics 
are like participating in the generation of discourse. And we know that discourse is kind of the thing that like makes an ideology real, right? It's the thing that like puts an ideology into action. And so a lot of what is happening in this book is an ideological fight that is like being enacted in the form of discourse. It's going to be enacted like more literally in the form of like wand fights. Wand fights. Yeah. <laughs> Which sort of make, make ideology more literal. And once the ministry falls, then their relationship as publics is going to, is going to, it's going to look really different. But for the time being, like it is a, it's ideological warfare. <laughs> it is actually ideological warfare. Indeed, one might even call it a witch hunt. (laughs) Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryworks.com or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. If you want to hang out with us more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at OhWitchPlease. WitchPlease is produced in partnership with Not Sorry and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to Not Sorry for having us and to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. Thanks, Coach! If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me make up an excuse for stumbling through your username on the spot. Thanks this week to Giraffes for Wings and Ray the Nerd. Our list is a little short because we just recorded less than a week ago, but I just think more of you need to go give us five-star reviews because do I experience pleasure if it isn't by hearing Marcel read lists of usernames? (laughs) No, I don't. One might also point out that the five-star reviews are an important, they're an important textual part of the public to which you all belong as listeners to this podcast. Yeah, they're a really central textual circulation of this discourse community. So if you could all just... Get on it. (laughs) Thank you as well to our wonderful Patreon supporters for making this show possible. There are a bunch of new ones of you. Thank you, new ones of you. Thank you. We're excited to hang out with you on Patreon and let you enjoy all of our witch please after eight nonsense. (laughs) If you want to join those hallowed ranks and hear even more from us, don't forget to head over to patreon.com slash witch please. And don't forget, we also have a brand new tea public store. The link is on our website, in our Twitter bio, in our Instagram bio. You can find it everywhere. We'll put it in the show notes. I am actively, actively making goofy new shirts. There is going to shortly be a Hedwig is a Better Feminist shirt coming to the store there's going to be a construct the cookies you coward shirt coming to the store it's just very important very important content Mm -hmm. we will be back next episode to continue our discussion of harry potter and the order of the phoenix but until then later witches